0: Well, if you will, in your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Uh, We are continuing through our series of this book, uh, and we find ourselves here in chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there are some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, I believe it's either 986 or 987 uh, for chapter 4. Uh, So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through our Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, it is Your Word, it is Your holy and inspired Word to us and for us and for our good. And so we ask that You would work through this, that You would use me as Your vessel to proclaim Your words with clarity and with truth and with grace. And Lord, that for all of us, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears, that we would hear your word clearly, that your spirit would be at work in each of us, that you would guide and direct us in all things for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We probably all have some goals in life, don't we? We're actually two months into the new year, uh, starting that third month, and many of you probably made some resolutions in the new year in, res- in regard to some goals, and actually saw an article that listed 26 life goals to focus on living a fulfilling life. I thought I'd just read that for the sermon. Uh, actually, I'm kidding. Um, but here are a few of the goals that they listed. Was, one, create a life plan, you know, find a way to give back, exercise, be kind daily, Get rid of bad relationships, embrace failure, take a risk, find a mentor, define your values. And, you know, that's obviously not all 26 of them. And and there's really not anything wrong with these, though some that I read I I would consider a bit sketchy and probably not things you should follow. But nonetheless, even for the good ones, the the whole sheet, the, the whole article did not address really the most important goal of life, and that's pleasing God. Certainly it's not bad to have Um, a goal to exercise more, to eat better, to have healthier relationships, or to read more. These are all good goals in life, but we must keep them all within the framework of our ultimate goal, which is pleasing and glorifying God. This morning, you can tell as, as we read through the text that we're moving with Paul into his instructions to the Thessalonian church What we've seen so far in this letter has has been his heart as a pastor, his desire to see them and care for them, his thankfulness to God for God's work in them, and he's letting them know of that thankfulness. And there's much more, and now he turns to exhortation. Our text, overall, is a call to please God. That's what it is. It's a call to please God. That's our supreme aim, and Paul focuses that aim in these verses in one particular arena. And so in this, in this message, we're going to see three basic ideas. One is that, that general urge to please God in the first two verses, and then the arena that, that, that pleasing is to take place, and then finally he's going to end with, here are some reasons why you ought to do this. Here, here's, here's the basis for much of this. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, the main instruction here is, I think, pretty clear. Walk or live in a manner that pleases God. They've received this before. Paul is now reminding them and further urging them on towards this goal, this goal of pleasing God. He's given them instructions before, all in that aim to please God. And he makes very explicit here what he has already written about previously. You can see in chapter 2, verses 4 and 12, he talks about this idea of pleasing God in your life. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, many of you are familiar with it. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I don't think you would be really off to say that man's chief end is to please God. It's to please God. That's our aim in life, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. So this is the exhortation. It's an urging. It's a strong urging that Paul is giving, but it's not being given in his own authority. He does so. You see the phrases in the Lord Jesus in verse 1, and then at the end of verse 2, you see through the Lord Jesus that these instructions, these commands really are given. Folks, Paul's not, this, this is not like IKEA directions for how to put together a bookcase that you can hope to follow, maybe, or You know, whether you want to or not, kind of thing. But these are real commands. He's reminding them of what they have already received when he was in Thessalonica initially. And he's saying, these are commands. These are commands for how a believer is to live his or her life. And because they are commands, what comes with that? An obligation to obey. Paul states it as how you ought to walk. Now, that ought should be understood as necessity, okay? We could translate this actually as how it is necessary for you to walk. It's necessary. This isn't simply how one should live. You know, if you just want to have a better Christian life, this is how you ought to do it. It's a a little stronger than that. It's necessary to to where such living, as one commentator wrote, is not optional for less seriously-minded Christians, Indeed, this necessity is heightened by the fact that such a lifestyle is a divine commandment, that God has called believers to this conduct, that God has given true believers the power to fulfill this commandment, and that to reject living in this manner is tantamount to rejecting God. Consequently, it is necessary that God's true people live this way if they want to avoid the inevitable last judgment." you can see why and, and understand why Paul is so strongly urging this upon his readers. And, and really, even using the term walk is, is a fairly global idea it, when you think about it. It's all-encompassing. Even though he's going to focus here on one particular area at this time, living the Christian life encompasses everything that one does. A former professor of mine wrote this, said, when it, wherever a Christian walks, Whether at home or at work or in play, these activities are to be carried out in such a way as to please God. Commenting on the duties required in the First Commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism notes that these involve being careful in all things to please Him. Being careful in all things to please Him. Folks, pleasing God is all of life. And the Thessalonians were actually doing well in this. Paul, Paul commends them. He says, you know, he wrote, just as you are doing, but then he adds that you do so more and more, that you would you would excel in this. There's a call to continue to grow. So uh, honestly, folks, as you think about it, no matter how your current life as a believer is going, no matter how it's going, whether it's going great or, or kind of you know, you're not really sure about, it, there's a call to grow. There's a call to excel, to improve, to abound more and more. Our holiness is always a work in progress. You you can never say, I achieved it. I I got there. I'm, I'm good. That's not a phrase any Christian can ever say until they're called home to glory. So this is Paul's strong urging to excel more in pleasing God, to be mindful in all things to please him. But Paul does have a specific arena that he's going to address, that he is going to go back to because this is instruction as well that he had already given them. Think about this. In three or four weeks, he'd already delved into what we're going to delve into in just a moment. And because of the nature of it, there's definite need to revisit this often in the life of a Christian. So look at verses three through the first part of verse five. For this is the will of God, Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Four, four. Paul is is giving the underlying basis for reminding them what he is about to address is the will of God. This is his will of command. This is, it's what believers are to obey. I've been asked many times as a pastor or as a Christian leader, what, I, I want to know what the will of God is for my life. Here it is. It's your sanctification. You, you want to know what God's will is? I can definitively tell you what God's will is for your life, that you grow in holiness. But what does that mean? I find the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 35 helpful in understanding sanctification the so sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's God's work in us, whereby we are renewed in the whole man and the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin, to put sin to death, and then to live unto righteousness. So it's both of them. It's dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. Folks, sanctification is something that touches every bit of us. It embraces the whole man. It, it might be helpful also to think of this as being set apart to the interests of God. For we are to be separated from what is unclean and unholy and set apart to what, uh, to, to what is righteous and good. Romans 6, 19-22. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We're set apart to righteousness. See, God desires our growth and holiness, and Paul turns to one particular arena, how we control our bodies in purity and in holiness. His command is abstain from sexual immorality. Now, nearly every time I hear the word abstain, I'm reminded of a high school class, actually. (laughs) Teaching on this subject, uh, one of my high school coaches was the one teaching this particular subject in school. And he asked the class, what's the best way to avoid unwanted pregnancies or STDs? And the class, somebody in the class answered, abstinence. And I will never forget his answer. His answer was no, actually, I think it's absenteeism. And I just thought, I sat, we all just sat there and we thought, that would work too. I, I guess if you're nowhere near, <laughs> if you're absent, it's not gonna happen. But you know, abstinence, when you think about what it is to abstain, is to stay away, to be distant from, simply not to go near at all. And the it that he's talking about, that, uh, that, that, that I'm talking about, is sexual immorality. It's the word porneia in Greek. It, you, you can hear something in that word, pornography, and, and other things. But this covers the gamut of immorality in this area, from fornication and adultery, homosexuality, pornography, anything that is contrary to God's good and holy purposes for sex in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Folks, this was so necessary to remind the readers because they were living in a world, well, that had pretty low standards in regard to sin in this arena. The temptations to sin in this could be found far and wide, and it really doesn't sound any different than today. These temptations fly at us on the television and ads everywhere, just pretty much anywhere you can go. A lot of times in that little six-inch screen that's in your pockets all day long. Well, probably not in your pocket all day long, most of the time we're looking at it. It's all over the place. And he calls every believer here to know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now this is not a new idea. Okay, it's it's not a new idea for Paul at least. In 1 Corinthians, he addressed this and this is a, a longer section in 1 Corinthians, but I think it's very helpful. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. You can hear this idea of pleasing the Lord, even in that. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh." You're not your own. Glorify God in your body. Live in holiness and honor. We're to please Him in everything, especially with our bodies. We are to use them in a manner that is holy and honorable. And I I think, actually, that that word honorable helps give us some, some good diagnostic questions. You know, just quite simply, is what you are doing honorable? Is what you are thinking about? Is what you are meditating upon honorable? Is it honoring the Lord who redeemed you and called you to holiness? Or is your action simply a pursuit of your own pleasure? No manner of sexual immorality is pleasing to God. And this doesn't merely fall outside of marriage, but also within marriage and how you treat your spouse. There's to be no abuse, no taking advantage of or demands, no forcing anything. There's also to be no withholding except by mutual consent. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. We are to honor God with our bodies in all that we do. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy these words in chapter 2. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And Paul uses "vessel" there. It's actually the, the word that's used for bodies in First Thessalonians. That we know how to possess our own vessel, our own body in holiness and honor. And I think these verses in 2 Timothy that call you to flee and to pursue fit with verse 5, where Paul calls a believer not to live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's, What's the defining characteristic there of the Gentiles? They don't know God. The nations, the people who do not know God, we are not to imitate them. We are to imitate God who is holy and righteous and good. Those who do not know God, their driving desire is not God's glory, but it's their own and the fulfilling of their own lusts and passions, often no matter the consequences. In essence, what those who do not know God pursue is idolatry. They're not pursuing God first. They're not putting Him first. In Colossians 3, 5, and 6, Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he writes, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Folks, this is not a light matter. This is serious. It, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So, this is the arena that God is calling us, that that, that Paul here, for God, is calling believers to to please God in. It's this area of how we possess our bodies in holiness and honor, to to not um, go after sexual immorality, to abstain from it. We are to use our bodies in honorable ways. And that is going to be controlled. The only way we will do that is if our driving passion is pleasing God. If our affections are for God more than they are for the things of this world. We have to replace those affections with greater affections. It's the power of a great affection in our lives. And that has to be for God and our desire to please Him. But Paul doesn't leave it here He gives reasons behind this command, and they surely aren't all the reasons, but I think they're fairly sufficient at this point in time. Verse 6, that no one transgressed and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So there are basically and I think there's four reasons that Paul lists here. The first is this: that no one transgressed or wrong his brother in this matter. To transgress is to, to go beyond the proper limits, to, to cross over the boundaries, to, to wrong, or you could use the word defraud, is to take advantage of. It's to cheat. If you commit adultery, fornication, honestly, if you utilize pornography you are wronging your brother or sister. You are defrauding them. You are cheating them. Doing so, as one wrote, involves deceptively taking something from others for selfish purposes. Paul undoubtedly believes that sexual relationships are reserved only for marriage, so that such relationships outside of marriage entail taking sexual possessions reserved for another. The the deception is that selfish sexual motives are often masked by sincere professions of love. I mean, how often do you hear, but I love this person? And so that gives you the right to, to engage in sexual immorality. No, it doesn't. If you love someone, you're going to want to put that in the proper context. Otherwise, you're actually loving your own desires more, and you are wronging them. You are defrauding them. You are, you are taking advantage of them. Sex is a wonderful gift from the Lord, but it is reserved for one context. Now, the second reason... Paul adds a warning because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Listen, I, I think, I think there's a word here for those who have been wronged and defrauded, who have been taken advantage of. You have a defender. You have an advocate. You know, vengeance is not ours. The Lord is our avenger. He is the one who will punish those who have done the wrong. And for those who have wronged, this doesn't mean there is no forgiveness for you. It does not mean that. But if there is no repentance, you will face the wrath of God. Warning in this manner is important. You need to know the end of the road on which you are trekking. But the one defrauded The one wronged has an avenger in all these things. God protects his people. God protects the weak. God protects those. It it may just be in the long run, but he will, and he will set things right. And then thirdly, Paul writes, For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. I think Paul pushes us here to reflect on the nature of the one who called us. Listen to what Peter wrote, and this reflects even um, Leviticus. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." We're to grow to be like him, the one who called us. We are called to be holy, but how do we grow in holiness? Well, we mentioned it earlier with that idea, that definition of sanctification, that it's a work of God's free grace in us. We're renewed, where we're enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. But God uses means to do that. He uses the word, He uses prayer, the sacraments, He uses encouragement and fellowship of the body of believers. But there's another thing that, that goes along with this that I, that I think helps us with, with our mindset. Is there there's simply a, a part of wisdom is what we focus upon, we will become more like. What you feed yourself with, you will start to look more and more like. 2 Corinthians 3:18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding, staring at, seeing. With intensity, the glory of the Lord are what? Are being transformed from one, into the same image, from one degree of glory into another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What we consistently behold, what we feed ourselves, what we look upon and want to emulate, it really matters. And further, in being called to holiness, that should direct us to the reality Folks, we're not to, to attempt to kind of ask the question of like, here, here's the line, how, how close can I get before I fall over it? That is the wrong question. If you weren't sure, that's the wrong question, don't ask that question. The question should be is, what do I need to do to get as close to Jesus as possible? What do I want to do to to, to be more and more conformed to his image? Not, how can I get so close with my boyfriend or girlfriend without actually crossing the line? That's not the question. We're not called to impurity, but we're called to holiness. We're pursuing God, not simply avoiding sin. And then fourth, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Again, it's, 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 he's restating, but ignoring these instructions, ignoring these commands, it's not simply disregarding Paul, it's actually disregarding God. This is a stern warning in regard to how we live as believers. If we don't live in holiness, at least that pursuit and and moving towards it, we are running counter to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you think the Holy Spirit who's given to us points us towards sin? Leads us into sin? No. He convicts us of sin and leads us to holiness. We want to walk with the Spirit. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, Listen to what he lists first. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and that's how a believer lives, is by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And which way is the Spirit walking? toward holiness, towards pleasing God. Keeping in step with the Spirit is living a life pleasing to Him. It's the only way we will do so in this arena or in any other. We need the empowering of God's Spirit at work in us to live the life that He calls us to. We cannot do it on our own. You cannot just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and beat sexual immorality. You need the power of God's Spirit at work in you. Paul wrote very plainly and clearly about what is expected and the consequences of walking contrary to the calling with which we have been called. But don't miss that great hope in this passage. The Spirit. The Spirit that has been given to believers. We have been called to this and He has given us the power. You you saw that at the end of... Uh, of chapter 3, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. He's at work in us, and He's at work in us through His Spirit. And folks, this this passage speaks just as loudly today as it did to the Thessalonians, We live in a world experiencing a, a pretty constant sexual revolution. Like some of the stuff that we are going through today was almost unheard of five or ten years ago. The only standard sometimes in this society is consent, if it's even that. That's not the ethic of the Christian We cannot let this saturate our lives and saturate the church, so our hearts must be directed to the Lord, to a life of pleasing Him. We can and should fight against this in our own hearts and exhort others, but the essential posture we must have to truly fight this is pursuing God. If you are pursuing God, these things will occur with less frequency. We need to pursue holiness, pursue Him. Let us be a people so consumed with gazing, with beholding the beauty and the glory of the Lord that the power of these temptations fall by the wayside and we would be characterized as those who would be said by others, that is a group of people who aim to please God. Let's pray. Father, work in our hearts. work in our lives to be a people who please you, guide and direct us. We live in a world that fights against this call to please you, particularly in this area of life, and so we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would direct us, that you would guide us. Lord, be glorified in our lives, not just individually, but corporately as a church body, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to with which we've been called. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.